Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Siobhan McCurgie, the host of New Books and Law. Today we'll be talking to Professor Guy Chet about his new book, The Ocean is a Wilderness, Atlantic Piracy and the Limits of State Authority. Guy Chet is an associate professor of early American and military history at the University of North Texas. Professor Chet, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became attracted to exploring trends of cultural continuity between the old world and the new. Well, I was born in Israel, and I went to Haifa University, which is in northern Israel, and I studied there general history. And I get, what, what attracted me to history at, uh, at the beginning was Roman history, but Latin just broke my back year by year by year, and after my third year, I, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I, well, I realized I would never have the kind of proficiency you would need, and I was always attracted to American history, partly because I guess I lived in the States for, you know, for two years as a kid. But by that time, by the time I switched to American history, I was already, through Roman history, I was brought into the circle of military history, and so I started working on American military history, and that, in time, brought me to bureaucratic history, which is what I do now. And as far as um, – I was definitely not attracted to investigating continuity. In fact, I was attracted to investigating the opposite. Um, when I started working on my first book, I believed that European warfare – was not uh, effective in North America and that, and, and that Americans had to unlearn the European way of war and learn a different method. And, um, but, but through the course of researching that book, I discovered otherwise. And it brought me into contact with this concept of American exceptionalism, which, uh, which investigates breaks between the old world and the new, but it also reveals trends of continuity, cultural, ideological, religious, and economic, political. And so in, in the investigation of forces of Americanization coming from the West, coming from the frontier, and forces of Anglicization coming from the East, on the whole, I became convinced in general, not just in one field of research, uh, I, I became convinced that in the colonial and even the revolutionary era, the forces of Anglicization were more pronounced. Can you tell us how you came to write your current book and why you were drawn to this topic? Yes. So, so this book is about the persistence of Atlantic piracy in the 18th and 19th centuries. And I emphasize the persistence because historians suggest that after the age of Blackbeard and Captain Kidd in the 1720s or so, Piracy disappeared because it was stamped out by the Royal Navy. My book argues the opposite, that the Atlantic remained a wild frontier for a long time after this, in which piracy was normal rather than exceptional. And just like I, I told you in the first book, this is not what I had set out to find. Uh, my, my intention was to detail how the Navy went about suppressing pirates. And so I was surprised to find that I just didn't find evidence of this kind of suppression. And the idea to investigate this topic, they did to, to, to look at naval or maritime history, came, again, as a follow-up to, to my first book, which um, in general in military history, and certainly in my classes, I, I emphasize to students the importance of maritime and naval affairs or maritime uh, naval warfare in shaping land warfare and that this is the critical background to whatever it is that we're studying in land warfare 
and but I was not a naval historian. I was not a maritime historian. So I felt that I needed to put my money where my mouth was, and to <clears throat> and to go to sea because I didn't really know much about it. You know, I knew enough to talk to my students at the beginning of the semester and at the end of the semester a little bit, but um, but I needed to educate myself more on this as as um, as some sort of context for the kind of military history that I was doing. And like I said, my assumption was that I would find roughly what I was able to find in my military history book, you know, where, where I find that, where, where I, when I found that the British Army was able to control the American wilderness to, to, and, and to stamp its method on the American battlefields. And so I expected that the British Navy, that, that I'd basically be detailing the process by which the British Navy did the same thing. Um, because you came at your work as a military historian rather than a traditional naval or labor historian, did you use different sources and did that help you discover a different story? No, I, no, I didn't. I on the whole, I follow the well. The one benefit of of coming into a field brand new and without grad student training in those in, in, in a particular approach to, in this case, maritime history, I started off by reading the works of other historians, you know, secondary works, and. So I, I read piracy, studies of piracy, but I also read legal histories and maritime histories and economic histories and cultural histories of life at, uh, at either at sea or at poor towns. And so I, w- I, I benefited from this, I think, in retrospect, in developing a consciousness of a different methodology than that of other piracy specialists. And so I think if I had to put a tag on myself, I think that I would label my methodology one that is, and sources, ones that are shaped by legal history and borderlands history. Borderlands is a field that that investigates frontiers of states. So whether it was ancient Rome or the United States, or medieval Poland. It's, it's a field that looks to see what li- how, how life is lived on these, uh, in, in these frontier communities, and what the relationship between life as it is lived there is and national governments, okay, because the, these areas are in between states. And so in, in what way do, do the state authority shape life as, as it is lived on frontiers? Okay. Could you tell us about the Atlantic frontier and continued piracy through the long 18th century? Yes. So, um, so like I said, what, what I, the findings of the book are that piracy continued well past the era when it's supposedly disappeared that marine insurance made made piracy more prominent or more uh, widely practiced and that the public general public you know, uh, local officials merchants consumers etc did not were, were not hostile to to illegal trade, to, to piracy, smuggling, wrecking, and other forms of illegal trade. Um, trade. As far as why the Atlantic, and, and so the what, what wound up happening is that by documenting the persistence of piracy in the face of attempts by the by the state to to eliminate it and delegitimize de- 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 it, I wound up looking at the nature of the British state and at the mercantile and legal beliefs of British subjects. Now, as far as why it is that the Atlantic remained a wild frontier despite a law enforcement effort, I would list 
uh, a number of reasons, uh, some of them natural, other are uh, imposed by society or, or by limitations of society. So the, the one basic reason is the ocean itself. Mm-hmm. Our ability to see and map and monitor and control the sea has always been very limited uh, when you compare it to our, our capacities on land. <clears throat> And this is true even today, let alone back then with their limited technology and and tools. Um, And this is what the title of the book refers to. It's uh, the the title is taken. The the ocean is a wilderness is taken from a poem by Thoreau in which he says that the ocean is a wilderness reaching around the globe, just like a jungle. But whereas the jungle and its wild animals recede when human civilization advances, that is not the case with the sea. The ocean remains, or the ocean jungle, remains wild and full of sharks and monsters, even next to our largest and most active seaports. So our reach into the sea is limited because of the nature of the sea. So that's a natural obstacle that the ocean represents to us. But this was exacerbated by other factors. And on these other factors, the short answer is that the Atlantic remained a frontier because the conditions of the golden age of piracy, which is the 16th and 17th centuries, the conditions did not change significantly in the 18th century when it, when piracy supposedly disappeared. And by conditions, I mean the fact that constant wars meant, meant wartime economies that were starving for provisions which encouraged smuggling and piracy. And then on top of this, naval officers who were charged with chasing pirates and and suppressing them were not interested in doing so because the presence of pirates represented opportunities for these sea captains to hire themselves out as security. But so, so, so we had these limiting factors for the effectiveness of the state in uh, enforcing the law at sea. But then on top of, of, of these, there's also the fact that navies, even if you discount poor motivation on the, on the part of naval officers, navies simply didn't have the ability at the time to seal coastlines and police trade routes. And anyone familiar with the attempt, with early modern attempts to establish blockades knows that blockade running and smuggling and trade with the enemy were a constant problem that navies were unable to to prevent. So if we see repeatedly the Royal Navy unable to prevent smuggling and illegal trade and blockade running in the English Channel or in the Mediterranean, then of course it would be um, unreasonable to imagine that they'd be capable of doing this in the Atlantic, which is 20 20 times larger than the Mediterranean. And then I'd say the the final factor had to do not with British power at sea, but with British power or British influence or governmental influence on land. Um, And I refer to the limited reach and jurisdiction and legitimacy of the government to the, the royal government to engage in this campaign against piracy. And again, this is part of the book's, thesis that piracy and other forms of illegal trade, all of these were, of course, lucrative, but the important thing about them is that they were popular and conventional. They were done more or less in the open for centuries. And so when historians cite the 1720s as the end point, when piracy ended, to them, this means that not only was the Royal Navy able to all of a sudden take command of the Atlantic through, with, with naval power, but also that the British state was able to dramatically influence the commercial beliefs and the legal beliefs of British subjects on land. And, and, and these historians emphasize the ability of, of the government to turn public opinion against pirates and against their collaborators and in favor of the government that was combating them. Going off that train of thought, you describe statutory law as a type of propaganda. What do you mean by that? Well, 
Um, so there is a, let me start by, before, in order to, to, to explain that, to point out that there's a demonstrable gap between the law, between statutory law and commercial practice at sea. Statutory law and royal proclamations and regulations explain very clearly what is legal behavior and illegal behavior at port and at sea. And piracy was definitely outside that legal limit. Uh, yet imperial officials routinely complained about illegal practices being conducted, being rampant in local communities, both in Britain and in North America. And, and it's not just piracy, but also smuggling, wrecking, trading with the enemy in wartime, etc. Um, and imperial officials in you know, the, the Board of Trade, the Privy Councils, complained that it's not just local merchants and dock workers and, and people like that, you know, civilians, but also the colonial courts and prosecutors were complicit in illegal trade by using all sorts of judicial tricks or administrative tricks to hamper prosecutions of, um, of, of, of illegal traders. So, so what you see is that the severe rhetoric and the harsh legislation against illegal trade were not effective in deterring smugglers and freebooters and, and their confederates from these trades. And, and they reflect, in fact, the growing frustration on the part of government agencies with what they consider to be lawless behavior. But, but it reveals also that these local people, local officials, local courts, local merchants, they had a different beliefs, uh, they had different legal beliefs than what we see articulated in statutory law. And you see this in, uh, in the ways in which common, uh, common law courts or common law jurists challenged the the, 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 the constitutional and legal assumptions embedded in statutory law, specific, especially, well, you see this especially with uh, piracy cases. So, so when I say that statutory law should be regarded as a form of propaganda, what I mean is that the mechanism by which kings and parliaments aimed to communicate to constituents the criminality of these trades, which were, like I said, were common and were not regarded disreputably. Um, the, the, the way that kings and parliaments want to communicate the criminality of these trades was through harsh and effective enforcement. But, like, but, but of course, government enforcement fell short of effectiveness, despite ratcheting up the, the legal and rhetorical pressure. But even though this campaign, this PR campaign and legal campaign against piracy or against illegal trade in general uh, did not succeed in the field, it, it offered agents of, uh, of the state an opportunity to articulate through legislation and proclamations to articulate an ideology of law and of state by which these behaviors were unacceptable. This, this vision and the policies that stemmed from it were actively and, and successfully in the 18th century resisted by British subjects who clung to an older view of society, an older interpretation of what is the state and what is the law. And this resistance was, of course, it was prompted by self, by economic self-interest, the profits, Within illegal trade, but uh, but it also reflected a different legal or constitutional worldview that was older, that was more traditional and backward-looking, and more localist. And and this other approach, the, the the more traditional and local approach, was much more common in British society and British culture. So we see uh, efforts by the government. You know, by prosecutors, by the Board of Trade, etc., to to address and attack the legal 
the commercial and legal beliefs or constitutional beliefs of British subjects. And um, Could you go into a little more detail about what accounts for the vast differences between what statutory law is trying to accomplish and what is actually happening at port? Well, so, um, so let's start with the fact that these trades were ancient. Okay, they were tra- uh, uh, practiced traditionally in these seaside communities. The um, the efforts to stamp it out reflect, I would say, two things on the part of royal governments or central governments. Number one is financial need, because all of what, what is common to all of these activities, all of these forms of illegal trade, is that they were tax free. And they did not pay import or export duties by bringing sh- bringing goods to shore. The so, so that is a um, a need that governments had, especially during this era that is uh, marked by constant warfare and treasuries that are pumping out money to to support the, the, these constant wars. Uh, and and you see this in the expansion of not only of the number of taxable activities in the market, but also in the ratcheting up of tax rates. So that is one uh, cause, one context for this campaign to get serious about illegal trade. The other, I think, is more of a bureaucratic one or a bureaucratic logic, and that has to do with the natural tension between local government and central government. And you see this in, in English history uh, or European history in general, and I'm assuming in any society that you'll uh, investigate, a natural tension, a, 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 a jurisdictional tension between central authorities and local authorities. Uh, people who study church history see it in church governance, uh, you, uh, you see it in every social organization. And so English history, for example, is marked by repeated clashes between agents of local government, namely the aristocracy, and the agents of the, se- the central agent of the central government, and that is the king, or later on the parliament. So, um, so what you see is a marketplace or, or a commercial environment that is marked by, that is um, governed by traditional understanding of how commerce is conducted and a new mentality or, or, or more national or imperial or imperialist mentality that is developing in the early or mid 18th century that is increasingly frustrated with behaviors that they consider to be lawless because they are unsanctioned by the central government. You suggest that marine insurers played a key role in reducing the gap between law and practice. How so? Uh, no, I suggest that they, in fact, uh, in, that, that marine insurance encouraged or, or, or sustained this gap between the law that outlawed piracy and practice that accommodated it, but that marine insurers were unhappy with this because they were the ones bearing the brunt of of losses at sea. And so they aimed, just like national governments tried to curb piracy, insurers tried to do the same thing. And so up until the late 17th century, most commercial shipping went uninsured and merchants protected their investments by either arming their ships or reducing their risk through all sorts of mitigating risk mitigating schemes, like sharing in other people's risks or dividing their cargoes in different ships, etc. When insurance became more prevalent and, and more cheap from the mid or late 17th century on, merchants did these things less and less. For example, um, once we see merchants more, uh, uh, adopting marine insurance to protect them from, from losses at sea, we see them replacing cannons and crew members with more cargo. 
and engaging in those other risk mitigating schemes less and less. And the, and the reason is obvious because they were selling their risk to insurance underwriters. So, so the person who was on the hook now was not the merchant or the ship owner, but the underwriter. And the, the, the key factor in this is that merchants bought insurance primarily to deal with the weather and with navigation problems. But by buying insurance, it gave them coverage against piracy losses as well, basically for free. And so having insurance, having an insurance policy in your pocket took away the incentive for self-defense, took away the incentive for traveling in convoy, um, for avoiding dangerous waters. So, and, and, and certainly underwriters understood that merchants and ship owners and captains were routinely reckless because they no longer were on the hook for any losses incurred in pirate-infested waters. And, and so because the underwriters, because the insurers were now suffering that or holding that risk, they tried to offer merchants and ship owners and crews all sorts of other counter-incentives to get them to be more um, careful you know, to, 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 to influence. So, so the insurance policy encourages them to be reckless and all sorts of rebates and discounts and bonuses were given by or offered by insurance were designed to, um, to influence them, to incentivize them the other way. And in rare cases, underwriters even resorted to taking matters into their own hands by filing lawsuits against rogue privateers, or even in one case that I found, outfitting a vessel to hunt, to hunt down a pirate at their own expense. But pr the, the primary effort taken by insurance, by insurers, excuse me, to minimize their losses was lobbying governments in order to fund naval convoys, to mandate by law, against statutory law, to, uh, to mandate that merchants sail with convoy protection. And of course, they also lobbied governments to act forcefully at sea and at court against pirates, privateers, and coastal records. And you can see this because often uh, um, piracy historians cite the petitions by the business community to the government to do something about piracy. But when you look at these petitions, you see that mostly these petitions came not from the business community as a whole, but specifically from the insurance community, which makes a lot of sense. You know, they're the ones who are suffering financially from it. It's not the merchants or the, or the ship owners who, if they're insured. And, and you can see that this lobbying was effective in the fact that punishments stipulated by law for wrecking, for piracy, for illegal trade, were um, ratcheted up. The, the harshness of the penalties were, was um, increasingly severe because of this lobbying from insurers. So in, in, in that, that, that's what I mean by that the incentive offered by insurance encouraged uh, merchants and, and, and captains to be less mindful of dangerous conditions. And because insurers were troubled by this, they tried various methods to make sea routes more secure. And I, actually, and, and by the way, it wasn't only against piracy. They also lobbied governments to, um, to map dangerous waters and to improve piloting capabilities, to improve, to, to, to provide lighthouses and other navigational aids on coastlines. So they, they, they use their financial and political power to try to get governments to help them out in reducing insurance claims. To move to maybe a more controversial direction, I was wondering if you could talk about how you differ from the scholars of piracy on whether there's essential difference between piracy and privateering. Yes. So the 
one thing that is common to <clears throat> excuse me one thing that is common to all historians who who accept the 1720s as the end point of piracy is that they all accept the distinction between piracy and privateering as a real thing. Okay. That, that these two categories of commerce raider were two different species of, of, of commerce raiders and that piracy had died, was suppressed by force and was replaced by state sanctioned and state regulated uh, privateering. So to them, all these commerce ratings, uh, all these commerce raiders operating in the mid and late 18th century um, were not pirates because they had a state license to do so. The fact that all contemporary observers and most modern historians acknowledge that it was impossible to keep privateers within the legal bounds of their commissions because the commissions outlined when and where and who it is okay to attack and who it is not. But like I said, all modern, uh, all contemporary observers and most modern ones acknowledge that in fact they strayed very widely from those commissions. Uh, and, and that, and, and so for me and for other, and, and for legal historians, but not necessarily piracy specialists, this calls into question that this contemporary observation that commissions were not meaningful restricting factors against commerce rate, against uh, indiscriminate commerce rating, calls into question the legalistic distinction between these two trades. But like, like, like you said, many modern scholars accept this as a very meaningful and real thing. And my, my contention, and this is backed up by prominent legal historians like Lauren Benton, for example, is that modern scholars are anachronistically accepting a legal distinction that wasn't even semantic at the time, let alone a real one. And by accepting the division between pirates and privateers, they, they lose sight of continued piracies after 1730. By, and by accepting statutory law, you know, we talked earlier about propaganda, by accepting statutory law at face value, as if it really reflected 18th century practice, these historians give credence to the presumptions of 18th century governments to monopolize the use of force at sea. And the result is that we get a, an inflated sense or inflated assessment of Britain's ability to tame the Atlantic frontier. And this, um, well, yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll let it go at that, but... You can see, and I, I won't go into the philology here, but the overlapping of piracy and privateers was evident not just in everyday practice, but also in everyday language. And so you can chart when it is that this distinction between legitimate and quote-unquote legal commerce rating and illegitimate and illegal commerce rating actually took hold in, in common usage in the English language. And it was towards the mid-19th century that this legalistic definition that was used by you know, the Board of Trade, for example, gained currency in wider English and American society. You suggest that lawlessness and tax evasion and even trading with the enemy in wartime should not be seen as signs of a deficit of patriotism. Why not? Well, um, so we know that despite the efforts uh, at suppression, smuggling and piracy remained rampant and endemic. And, you know, they remained the backbone of many coastal economies 
and, and, and economic historians also argue that it, it remained the backbone of the imperial economy. And certainly, so, so to us, these illegal traders, you know, trading with the enemy, smuggling, you know, pirates, etc., um, they, they seem unpatriotic, and yet we find them couching their activities in patriotic rhetoric, which suggests that either they're being untruthful, you know, that they're presenting themselves as patriotic, even though they are just pursuing private gain at the expense of, of the community, of the nation. Or it suggests that maybe the problem is with us, that we just don't understand a different mentality of, of, of state. Um, and, and certainly the idea that merchants should be judged by what they do, you know, trading with enemies, avoiding taxes, etc., rather than by what they say is a valid one. You know, just because you say you're a patriot doesn't mean that we need to accept it at face value. But if we're going to do so, let's let's deal for example, let's first deal with what they're doing. Okay? These people, you know, people who are pillars of the community, wealthy merchants, etc., uh, who are acting as smugglers, trading with the enemy, invested in piracy, they were acted in ways that we would recognize as patriotic in other realms. For example, performing a military service or supporting military service with, 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 with their uh, donations, uh, providing charitable contributions. While at the same time, they were operating in the marketplace in ways that by statutory law were illegal, but by common practice and common law, were sanctioned as uh, legitimate and, and, and not just uh, conventional, but actually laudable. Um, so it seems that, that they and their neighbors and their local government did not see these nominally illegal trades as illegal or disreputable or unpatriotic. So it is possible, at, at the very least it's possible, that these people were sincere in their belief that what they're doing is beneficial to the community, to the empire, uh, and, and that they're not elevating private interests over the national interest. And if they're sincere, uh, then it forces us to understand their constitutional construct of the state, you know, that trading with the enemy is unrelated to loyalty. You know, how, how can somebody who is, we can understand why somebody who isn't patriotic would trade with the enemy. That's understandable. But for us in the 21st century, the 20th century, it, it requires more work or more uh, stepping outside of our own culture to understand how does a man who calls himself a patriot trade with the enemy or avoid or, 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 or do things that are by statutory law illegal? And so and, and I think it points out that they had a different set of legal beliefs and a different understanding of state power or state authority or jurisdiction than we do, which explains why to them these are not conflicting things. We, we can find similarities in, in even in our countries that are much more nationalist and exclusive in terms of their demands of, uh, of loyalty. But I guess I'll, I'll just say one more thing, that, that this question is one that they dealt with as well. It's not just modern observers looking at those people and wondering how they can be patriotic. Um, Accusations of disloyalty were hurled at these people at the time by parliament, by the Privy Council, by the Board of Trade. And they and their neighbors and local officials were engaged in this debate. Like I said, it's, it's the law was propaganda. You know, the law was explaining to your neighbors and your business associates why you shouldn't trade with Joe because he's a bad actor. He's disloyal. Um, these 
friends and neighbors and, and, and customers and local officials were engaged in a debate with the national government explaining in, in response that no, that adhering to custom is not an act of disloyalty. And you can see this in, if, if you're familiar with um, American revolutionary history, you can see this debate in action that American uh, opponents of the Stamp Act in 1765 or American rebels in 1775 and, and many Britons who supported them on the other side of the ocean, they did not see opposition to British legislation as, as a treasonous act. They saw it as upholding true British values against an inappropriate or illegal action by the government. So you had here a, uh, a constitutional debate about whether the new law, the new statutory law, or the old custom, customary law, was legitimate. You know, which trumped the other, which had greater legitimacy. And in that society, custom and tradition and practice carried more weight. You talk in your book, I, this is going off the same thing we just talked about, about how um, pirates and smugglers were viewed as living embodiments of traditional customs and virtues and of the community's way of law, all under assault by an unresponsive, increasingly meddlesome state, which I, I think we just discussed for a while, but I don't know if there's anything more you want to say about that idea. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. Adam Smith is most famous for saying so, but, but other uh, political observers and people involved in the customs uh, service pointed out, some approvingly, some critically, that the smuggler is a friend to the community. He's a friend to his neighbors and to you know, local government, et cetera, et cetera, because he is providing cheap goods that are necessary. And, and, and he points out that if the tariff is 20%, then the smuggler is a 20% benefactor of the public. If the tariff is 100%, he is much greater a friend to the community. And so it, it's, it's a, um, the, the wartime conditions, the wartime economies, and not, not only in, in the British Empire, but also Spanish and the French and Dutch, created conditions that turned these traditional and conventional trades into um, a lifeline for local communities. Because wartime made also the high demand and high taxation of the, involved in wartime economies made all sorts of goods, you know, food supplies, uh, construction supplies, you know, everything else, much more expensive. And so in that respect, the, the illegal trader was not just a, you know, didn't have only tradition and custom on his side, but also the fact that he was providing a lifeline to his uh, consumer base. So he was even more, the conditions made it even more laudable or, or, or um, beneficial to the community. And, and again, it relates to this idea that these people, these pe the, the illegal traders and the people that they associated with did not see them as elevating private profit over communal interest. But they saw these things converging. Yeah, that what is good for the illegal trader is also good for his consumer and also good for the local officials who um, benefit from the economic activity. And you can see this because you can see this in action because in colonial America, governors competed with one another, governors and courts competed with one another um, over beneficial terms that they could offer illegal traders. Okay. We can offer you better um, benefits. Just like, for example, just like today, different states 
try to attract Hollywood movies by offering them different, you know, freebies and tax breaks, etc. Et the same thing uh, was occurring at the time, trying to attract these, what we, what we would call pirates, they called privateers or, pir- or, or, or commerce raiders or corsairs or just merchants, because they, they understood, they believed that the economic activity, activity that they were generating was good and beneficial for the community. And even if they thought that, Largely, they would even say that it benefited the imperial economy. You had touched upon the natural tendency to retroactively apply the jurisprudence, sensibilities, and the logic of the modern nation-state to early modern states of the 17th and 18th centuries. I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that. Yes, the and again, this is this is an, uh, a methodological observation that is made by legal historians and borderlands historians that the that, that narrative of the state extending extending its authority towards the frontier and monopolizing violence on the frontier is the one that we have here with the, the accepted narrative about the stamping out of piracy in the Atlantic okay, that the state agencies used you know armies navies uh, courts, gallows, in order to extend its authority towards the frontier. Um, what, border, what legal historians and borderlands historians have uh, have done is to critique this assessment, and this is the development of the last 20, 30 years or so, and point out that, in fact, frontier conditions were uh, sustainable for long periods of time, and that often national governments acquiesced to local customs and local political arrangements rather than shaping the frontier in their own image. Um, And so these borderlands and legal scholars suggest that even though the state's monopoly on violence was clearly articulated in law, again, statutory law, it was not accepted as legitimate, and it wasn't um, a practical reality in peripheral communities. And, <clears throat> and this assessment is evident in studies of medieval borders or frontiers, of ancient Roman frontiers, of certainly, uh, certainly of the American West, but uh, for some reason, it did not. This methodological critique has has not gained ground at sea, and this is what I'm I'm trying to do. Um, now, as far as projecting our sensibilities of the past, uh, our sensibilities of the modern states on on these frontiers of the past, fundamentally, the legitimacy that the state and statutory law enjoy in the hearts and minds of modern constituents is born by first-hand experience in our daily lives that the state that, that the state actually does have the practical ability to monopolize violence to disarm non-state actors to make certain activities not just illegal but also illegitimate and to and to enforce unpopular statutes from border to border, and even at sea. But governments simply didn't have, didn't enjoy this kind of credibility and this kind of legitimacy in the 18th century because they repeatedly demonstrated to constituents through their failure to curb illegal trade, for example, that they didn't have the capacity, or even in many cases the commitment, to exert real power locally. So the law, as a form of propaganda, remained unconvincing to them, where, whereas it is convincing, it's more convincing to us. Um, and in, I once read a, an, an observation by, I think it was Jonah Goldberg, about Lord Acton's famous aphorism, that power corrupts. And he pointed out that, yes, certainly wielding power over others encourages moral weakness in a ruler, but as important is the fact that 
power tends to corrupt the observer of power or the observer of the powerful, most specifically the historian, us. Um, and it strikes me as true on this issue that we moderns, and historians included, and, and historians are the problematic ones in this formulation, since we are the ones who are telling lay people how it was back then, that the modern people have the... Um, we've been living within the modern nation state for roughly 150 years now. We're born into it. We live in it. We educate our kids and students in it. And then our children and students do the same and so on and so on for a few generations now. So we, we live in this environment. We have been living in this environment in which we observe tremendous administrative power wielded by our government bureaucracies in virtually every facet of our lives in literally every single day of our lives. So it's natural for us to see state power along with all the constitutional and ideological assumptions that undergird it, it's natural for us to see them as credible. And when we see state power articulated in 18th century statutes, our own experience of observing state power makes us credulous. And it obscures from us the credibility gap that contemporaries observed between law and custom. Okay. To conclude, I'd love to know where your work is heading next. Well, I have one chapter in an edited volume about insurance, about marine insurance, which will come out soon. But uh, but that's the last publication that will come out of this research. I really was glad that my piracy research brought me in touch with a small group of enthusiastic researching um, on or People who work on marine insurance are a small but very dedicated and very enthused group. So it's uh, I, I was it's a wonderful field, and I'm glad to to be a part of it. But uh, but I'm not going to venture further than what I've already done on it. My next project will stay with this theme of of the state and its reach. Uh, basically, I'm working on a constitutional history of British America during the colonial and revolutionary era. So it's tied with the, with these issues of liberty and juris- local liberties and national jurisdiction that kept popping up in this book. Uh, and so it's about the rise of the modern state in the context of the old British conviction that the national government had limited jurisdiction and limited legitimacy locally. Guy, that sounds like a great project, and I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. 